Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, a look at the big stories this week. It snowed in Beijing Saturday, the first precipitation in months. Other than that, No big surprises in the capital over the weekend as China's largely ceremonial legislature formalized most of what had been expected from its annual meeting, including the re-election of Xi Jinping as president, a position that now has no term limits. Former anti-graft czar and Xi ally Wang Qishan was appointed vice president and is expected to play a more active role than his predecessors. At the same time, China is implementing a major overhaul of the government aimed at tackling slow economic growth, environmental degradation, and market volatility. The National People's Congress, the country's legislature, approved a sweeping plan to shake up the state council, China's cabinet, under which the number of agencies will be set at 26, down from the 52 it has had since 1982. China's central bank handed out its biggest ever fine to China Minsheng Bank, the country's largest privately owned bank, for payment and clearing violations as regulators stepped up a crackdown on market irregularities. The People's Bank of China said that it issued a warning and a 26 million U.S. dollar fine to the Xiamen branch of Minsheng Bank. Ping'an Bank, a smaller commercial lender, was also fined 2 million U.S. dollars for violating rules of clearing services. A recent study found that 90% of Chinese mobile apps offering personal financial services have flaws in their privacy policies that may put consumers' information at risk. The report by Renmin University reviewed 200 popular personal finance apps, including payment service Alipay, JD.com's wealth management platform, and online peer-to-peer lender RenRenDai. Over half of the apps lacked transparency in their privacy policies, 20 didn't even have a privacy policy, which means these apps collect data on users' identities, bank accounts, and credit history without any promise to protect the information. Several of the apps make users agree to give access to their microphones, text messages, contact lists, and location information, violating the principle that companies should only collect the minimum amount of information necessary to conduct the functions of the apps. 
The U.S. Chamber of Commerce has warned the Trump administration about a proposed move to impose steep tariffs on Chinese imports, saying they would hurt American consumers and economic growth. The group's CEO, Thomas Donahue, said that tariffs of $30 billion U.S. dollars a year would wipe out over a third of the savings American families received from last year's tax reform. If the tariffs reach $60 billion U.S. dollars, which has been rumored, the impact would be even more devastating, he said. Donahue's comments came after reports that Washington is considering tariffs on Chinese technology, telecommunications, and consumer products, as well as further restrictions on Chinese investments in the U.S. After his Mercedes-Benz got stuck in cruise control at 75 miles per hour, a driver in China discovered that the ride involved very little cruising and almost no control. The man, an amateur car racer surnamed Xue, was on a highway that connects China's Henan and Shanxi provinces when he found he was unable to turn off his vehicle's cruise mode. Nothing could fix the problem, Xue said, switching off the function, braking, shifting gears. At one point, he whizzed through a crowded toll area at full speed. He even tried calling a Mercedes-Benz helpline, but the instructions he was given failed to return control of the acceleration. Then, unlike most speeders, he called the police. Two police cars quickly located him on the highway, and one drove in front of him to clear the roads, and one followed behind. After an hour, he was finally able to decelerate, but questions have since swirled about how, with several media outlets speculating that Mercedes used remote technology to deactivate the cruise control, which the company denies. Bike-sharing leader Ofo has secured nearly $900 million U.S. million in its latest fundraising round, which comes at a time when the company is dealing with investor infighting and the collapse of a merger with arch-rival Mobike. In December, Taishin learned that the Ofo-Mobike merger plan was suspended due to opposition from both management teams, who were concerned that any deal would grant car-hailing giant Didi Chuxing, which has a 25% stake in Ofo, greater control of the new company. With this latest funding led by Alibaba Group, Ofo is expected to continue a proxy war with Mobike, which itself brought in $1 billion U.S. dollars in funding in January and whose top investor is internet giant Tencent. Let's turn now to some of Caixin Global's reporters and editors to take a closer look at some of the big news for the week. First up is Jingxuan Tang, business reporter for Caixin Global, who's in Hong Kong right now, and she'll tell us about the retirement of one of East Asia's business titans, Li Kaixin. Who is he, Jingxuan, and what's behind this decision to retire? Hong Kong's richest man, Li Kaixing, just retired. He's turning 90 this year, and he's been working since he was 12. And in the past more than half a century, he's been building up Hong Kong's and Asia's biggest companies. He's stepping down as chairman of C.K. Hutchison Holdings Limited, his massive conglomerate that is involved in pretty much any industry you can think of. And his oldest son, Victor Lee, will take over his position. He was actually named Lee Cushing's successor in 2012, and he's been trained for many years to take his father's place. Once he's retired, Lee will be a senior advisor to the company. He also said he plans to spend more time on his charitable organization. So what do Lee's companies actually do, and uh, what's his business history been like? So Lee's business empire started off as a plastics factory. He actually made plastic flowers and became one of the region's largest producers of plastic flowers in the 50s. But 
by the 1960s, he decided that plastic flowers were no longer, you know, the wave of the future. That decade also happened to be one where Hong Kong saw a lot of political and social upheaval. There were riots in the mid-60s, and a lot of people lost confidence in the future of the colony. They actually sold off their properties, and Lee saw that this was a good opportunity to get land cheap. Eventually, this plastics factory turned into a real estate giant, and he later bought a number of other companies, most notably Hutchison Wampo in 79, notable because this was a colonial-era trading company, and he was the first person of Chinese descent to own it. And since then, his companies have expanded their business to over 50 countries in the world. So is that mostly real estate then? They're active in fields like telecommunications, retail, real estate, infrastructure, manufacturing, energy, lately energy. Lee sounds like obviously one of the colossal figures of modern Hong Kong history. Uh, Was his run largely drama-free? Compared to some other business figures from around the world, I would say yes, although he did come into conflict with some mainland media a couple years ago because some publications, notably the People's Daily, criticized Lee as immoral and unpatriotic for his divestment from many of his mainland holdings. Lee, like many of Hong Kong's other tycoons, has also been accused of maintaining a stranglehold on the city's economy, driving up property prices and leaving little room for smaller competitors. So what will the impact be? Uh, What's the bigger picture here? Well, Lee's retirement actually doesn't come as a surprise to anyone. He's been planning it openly for years, and his son, Victor, has taken over many responsibilities in his business. Although Victor Lee has largely stayed out of the limelight, the people who do know him, who talked to Tyson, all said that he was a smart, focused person, so they seemed confident in his ability to take over his father's business. Although these are very big shoes to fill. Thanks for talking with us, Jing Shed. Thank you, Kaiser. Next up is Doug Young, managing editor of Caixin Global. Doug, let's talk about two stories here. First, uh, let's let's chat about Le Shi. Uh, what's the latest dumpster fire here with Le Shi? Well, a lot of our listeners out there might not know the name Le Shi, but they might know the name Le Eco, which is uh, sort of China's corporate basket case of the year. Uh, started out as a video company and got into too many different areas too quickly, and they've just been having this debt crisis for pretty much the last year. So Le Shi is actually the listed unit of Le Eco, and their stock is traded in Shenzhen. And the news this week is that Le Shi's chairman has officially resigned. And this came as a, probably not a huge surprise, but it, it did come as a bit of a shocker to, to people. Story is, is this guy, uh, Sun Hongbing, was sort of a, a white knight. His company, which is a big real estate company called Sunak, had given Le Shi a big capital injection because this company just was bleeding cash and, and had huge debts. And he was going to come in and, and try and turn this thing around. Well, didn't work. And Taishin got the inside story from a bunch of people who are sort of familiar with the company. And it, it just sounds like there was just no way to salvage. He was trying to put together a reorganization plan. 
there's just very few options that he had to trying to, you know, tackle this company's debt problems. And sounds like he was butting heads with the regulators because they, they weren't accepting his proposals. And, and I think the guy finally just threw his hands up and said, what can we do? This is not happening. And, and he's resigned. And, and now everybody's not sure what's going to happen next for this company. I know we don't exactly have a crystal ball, but we do have you, Doug. So uh, what do you think is, is coming up next for these guys? Well, one thing we can say that's next is the stock. It, it actually bounced back. Uh, this is a, a long, long-ish story. The stock had been suspended for about eight months. It resumed trading in January. It tanked at first, but then it actually started bouncing back, probably on speculation, but also on hopes that, that maybe these guys would be able to do a, a reorganization plan. Because the guy at the helm, this Sun, Sun Hong Bing, is a pretty savvy guy, unlike the last guy who got kicked out and got them in trouble. So the stock had been bouncing back, but guess what? When trading resumed, uh, it, it fell by 10%, which is the daily limit on its first trading day after the pause. So that's not looking too good. In terms of what's next for them, people are saying they could declare bankruptcy. They're saying they could delist. None of the options look too attractive, but it seems like speculation is that this company is going to need a major overhaul that will probably involve some form of bankruptcy, you know, renegotiating their debt with their, their creditors uh, just because there's no other way out. There's no more white knights who are going to just come in and give them cash. And the company just isn't generating the kind of cash it needs to pay off its debts. So, so, Doug, is this a total outlier or is this perhaps kind of emblematic of the problems that some Chinese companies face? Yeah, this is actually a very classic case for China. It's probably a bit extreme just because it's so high profile and the amounts of money involved are so big. But you, you see these sort of boom busts in China much more often than you would see, say, in the West. And what usually happens is exactly what happened here is you get these sort of headstrong you know, king of the universe type uh, CEOs think they know it all, think they can do it all. And, and they just suddenly want to get their hands into every pie imaginable, you know. So these guys started out, they did quite well in the paid TV, sort of internet TV space. But then they just started getting into all these other things. And some of the big ones were car services, you know, like Uber type services. They got into cell phones. They were getting into driverless cars, they got into filmmaking, you know, they had set up this Hollywood studio, a sports division, you know, you name it, they were into it. And, you know, it, these things cost money and they take time to, to earn back money. So, you know, they were just piling on the debt left and right, you know, sometimes by taking out loans, sometimes by issuing new shares. Uh, they were doing everything. But this is probably an extreme case of something that you do see in China quite often. Doug, let's move to our last story here, which is about China and 5G. Uh, once there was a time when I followed telecoms technologies and infrastructure rollout pretty closely, but that was over 10 years ago now. Uh, so what's the story now on 5G rollout? The, the story here is uh, we, we got some exclusive comments from one of the lead researchers in China and telecoms. And uh, the stuff that she said is, is pretty much consistent with the signals that have been coming out, which is basically that China is really being quite bullish on, on 5G. Right now, most of the world uses 4G. China has 4G. been on the market now maybe for the last couple of years or maybe three years now. But the typical pattern in the past has been each new generation of wireless service, China has typically been a bit far behind the rest of the world. When I say the rest of the world, I mean the West usually in rolling out 
the next generation. So for example, 3G in the West had probably been doing 3G for at least three or four years before China finally awarded its licenses and started setting up its networks. 4G, it was a little closer, maybe two years late. But anyhow, with 5G, China's made it pretty clear that they want to be at the head of the group. And now they're saying uh, they're going to be doing some big city trials next year. Right now, they're still trialing equipment, but they're going to actually get test networks up uh, starting next year and, and possible commercial launch in 2020, which is pretty much when the most advanced Western markets will probably be going to uh, market with commercial servants. So what's the impetus for this? I know they've got a lot of interest in the equipment itself and in, in you know, the standards for the technology. Uh, but what are, what are the drivers other than that for, for China wanting to be at the forefront here? Yeah, that's exactly what's happened is China suddenly has a big interest in this. Uh, China's trying to move up the value chain in terms of being a leader in the development of new technologies and, and telecoms is, is certainly one of those. China has some very savvy uh, telecoms equipment and, and smartphone makers, uh, the biggest one being Huawei, which it's either the number one or number two global seller of telecoms equipment. So they actually have companies now that can can be leaders. You know, before China didn't really have these companies. They were sort of followers and licensing technology from other people. But now they have companies that can create their own technology. So they want to be in the thick of the, you know, sort of leading edge of, of new telecommunications because their companies can develop equipment and, and technology and then they can license that out. It's a, it's a very, very uh, lucrative business. If you develop the technology and it becomes part of the standard, everybody's got to license that from you. So anybody making equipment or cell phones or anything like that has to come to you and give you some royalties. So how is the rest of the world and, and particularly the U.S. Uh, reacting to, to China's push in 5G? We saw this, actually. The U.S., is especially, like you say, they've been quite nervous about this. Uh, and this was all in the headlines last week when there was a, that really big uh, telecoms deal. It was a Singaporean company called Broadcom was going to buy the big U.S. telecoms chip maker Qualcomm. It was, it was a huge deal. I think it's probably one of the biggest M&As in, in history. But Donald Trump stepped in and basically said, we're not going to let this deal go ahead. And they didn't really give any reasons. Qualcomm is the world's biggest smartphone chip maker, and they, they own a lot of technology related to wireless communications. So basically, everyone is saying, you know, they didn't want this company Qualcomm falling into the hands of an Asian company, which Broadcom is based in Singapore. And everybody was citing China as, as one of the, the primary reasons for this veto. They're saying, you know, losing this major U.S. telecoms company to an Asian company would just totally open the way for Huawei to come in and, and dominate this industry or, or become a, a much bigger player in this industry, which could potentially put the U.S. at risk because some people in the U.S. believe that using Chinese technology could open the way for insecurities, you know, putting in the loophole. Holes, uh, for spying and things like that. So that deal's not happening. Yes, that deal looks like it's off. Well, Doug, thanks as always, and we will check back in with you next week. Okay, nice talking to you, Kaiser. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Syndicate Business Brief is powered by SubChina and is produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. 
Special thanks to Lee Sin and Tanner Brown of Tyson Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wufei for the music. Be sure to check out our current affairs show, Seneca, as well as the new GGV996 podcast on tech in China, and follow the news from China every day at SupChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.